Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. All the banks are broke. Oh, why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. This is going to be our closing of season four. And I think we're, we're closing out on a bang. Seriously, this might be probably the most important episode I've ever made. And I'm not just saying that. You know, there's some times when I um, discover things when I do the research, when I spend a lot of time really investigating something. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's clear as day. Other times it's, it's not as clear, but it's like an itch you have and you keep scratching it and you're like, Hmm, should I keep scratching it? (laughs) Will it turn into something? Should I go to the doctor for it? Right. This has been something that has literally been like an itch probably since about April. Right. And I I had been researching it for a while. I was coming up empty for, for almost like, you know, for almost like weeks straight. I kept digging, kept digging and Lo and behold, I found some nuggets. And then lo and behold, those nuggets turned out to be a lot of gold there. And um, I want to present that to y'all today. So this is going to be the season four closer, right? As you know, we start season five here in July. We actually should be on vacation already, but, you know, we had so much content that we had to release. It's just kept getting pushed back, pushed back. And we also had an ESG episode I wanted to do, but this was just too important. This is just way more important than ESG. I mean, in my opinion, ESG is definitely a direct attack on Bitcoin, but this blows a lid off of ESG. Um, 
I think what this does is uh, clearly shows um, lines are drawn in the sand going forward. Um, and people will have to pick sides. I, I think, I think, uh, I think Bitcoin maxis have smelt this for so long. No one has given them credit for it. You know, no one has taken them seriously. It's just something that they have said today. We actually have proof of it. Um, I'm going to release this to everybody. This is going to be a free episode. I have all my sources, citations inside the newsletter, everything. So feel free to fact check it, do whatever you want, share it with the world. I I highly recommend checking everything out that I have here. Um, I'm an open book, man. It's all there. I mean, there's nothing that I'm trying to hide. I mean, I'm even using Ethereum resources, right? I mean, we're getting it directly from them. (laughs) So that just shows you. So today is going to be broken up into four parts. First one is going to be a prologue, how Ethereum scams everyone. The second one is going to be the greatest scam ever pulled. The third one is going to be introducing Justin Drake. And the fourth one is going to be called Ethereum and the continuation of fiat currency and debt slavery. So four parts, very simple. And what I want you to do is realize that everything that I have put together is not to sway anybody's opinion on Ethereum or on Bitcoin. It is purely a response to Ethereum's attack that they are ultrasound money, right? There's a meme going on in Ethereum. They have this whole... Well, you know what? We'll discuss it in the show. But this is a direct response to the Ethereum Foundation and Justin Drake calling Ethereum ultrasound money. And I'm going to explain why that is a blatant lie. That's all we're doing here today. Everything else is really just Cool Whip (laughs) on that delicious Sunday. That's all it is. That's all it is. Cool Whip. Yummy Cool Whip, too. So, like I said, keep an open mind. Listen to the facts. And if you're an Ethereum holder, you're probably going to learn something. That's all I'm going to say. And if you're a Bitcoin holder, you're probably going to learn something. That's all I'm going to say. Ultimately, I'm trying to keep it as unbiased as possible and strictly sticking to the facts, right? And like I said, those facts are in the newsletter. So sign up and read them. That's all I'm saying. Okay. With that, let's get into ultra shit money. You come, and I said you were baby. You 
So before founding Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin put considerable effort in 2013 into trying to convince investors to fund him in constructing a quantum computer. That's right. His plan was to use this quantum computer to solve computational infeasible problems that can't be done practically on an ordinary computer such as reversing cryptographic hash functions. Since he didn't know how to build a quantum computer, his plan was to simulate one on an ordinary computer. Since this apparently wouldn't count as just running a program to solve the impossible problem, this was an idea that had long been put forth by his associate in this crazy endeavor, Jordan Ash. Now, they went and tried to get funding and to also get anybody to invest in it. But lo and behold, no one took <laughs> them seriously. So what did he do next? Well, he created Ethereum. And he did it with a pre-mine. And so he set aside 12 million ETH for Ethereum developers. And he set aside 60 million ETH for Ethereum investors, which gives you a total of 72 million ETH at launch. Now, no one really knows the total supply of ETH today. And if they tell you this, they're lying. But Best guess estimates is somewhere around 112 million ETH. So if you do some back of the napkin math, you can easily see that 12 million ETH for Ethereum developers plus 60 million ETH for Ethereum investors equals 72 million ETH minus 112 million ETH today equals, that's right, 40 million ETH currently in circulation right now for the general public. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because 62% of the current supply was pre-mined and therefore distributed before the first ETH block was mined. 
That's why it's important. And that's going to become even more important once we get to the fourth chapter of this podcast. You're going you're gonna to understand why what they're doing really is creating a Cantillion effect, not ultrasound money. Okay, with that, let's get into how Ethereum scams everyone, other than <laughs> creating a 62% pre-mine <laughs> before distributing the first ETH, because that's already how you scam everybody. But what they do now is how you additionally scam everybody. You know, Ethereum people love to call it this infinite machine, but it really is an infinite scamming machine. just as valid as yours or something like that it's like no it's not there are, there are objective facts and you could go and and listen to the actual uh, actual technical details and find out what's actually the truth instead of oh you know that's just your perspective you know you, you guys are bitcoin maxis and therefore you know you're biased or whatever maximalism isn't prescriptive it's descriptive right that's that that's what we like to say and the idea uh, is that it's not necessarily that we're we're like uh, cheering for our own team, right? It's not it's not Red Sox Yankees or something, and we're we're cheering for one team versus the other, and the Ethereum camp is cheering for their team. It's 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 not like that at all. It's descriptive. Money has a network effect. There are certain things that Bitcoin has that Ethereum absolutely does not have, including decentralization. In this cryptocurrency space, trade-offs are very well-defined technically. Um, so the reason Bitcoin may appear slow, it may appear expensive, that's because it's decided 
to be decentralized, to be censorship resistant. So as far as I'm concerned, there has been no technological breakthrough to provide censorship resistance and a decentralized property faster and cheaper. Okay. And, and this is not up to debate. This is just math. And so, for example, for some blockchain or cryptocurrency project to advertise themselves, you know, it, it, in that realm, like, oh, we're, we're faster and cheaper than Bitcoin. Oh, and we're also decentralized and, and we're also censorship resistant. Um, according to math, it, last time I read, you know, research papers, that is a lie, bold-faced lie. Um, and so that's just a high-level example that I think everyone can relate to. You've seen the coin market cap advertisements and, and such. And so, uh, or Vitalik will say things like, I don't see any difference between a light client node and a full node. I mean, that's just a bold-faced lie or you are, you know, dangerously idiotic on the topic. Either way, not good news. And so, I guess without ranting more, that, that's, that's what I mean is that, sure, there can be blockchains that are faster and cheaper, but let's take the decentralized and censorship-resistant labels off those. Do you mind? Because they can't accomplish them all. And uh, I know that for a fact. It's just computer science. And, you know, it would take... 10 more Satoshi white papers to the level of brilliance that Satoshi delivered to deliver on all the promises of Ethereum and, and the other top 10 altcoins in the, in the uh, overall total market cap. And so that, that's my problem is the computer science isn't there, but, but the marketing's there. And it, it's really misleading to innocent retail investors. It's, it's really scary. Um, I, I like to call this whole altcoin trend, I like to call it an arbitrage on the trend. And what I mean by that is altcoins, in my opinion, they're taking the arbitrage difference between the overall interest that society has in cryptocurrency. Because I think at this point, it's fairly intuitive that it's a massive investment opportunity and it's a technological breakthrough that should not go unnoticed. Fair enough. However, to the ability that someone can understand why it's important, how it works technically, I mean, there's a large gap between there. You're getting everyone between high school kids and you know 70-year-old grandparents that are opening Coinbase accounts and wanting to, to put money in this asset class. Um, do they know the difference between a full node and, and a light client and what it means to be sufficiently peer-to-peer and decentralized? No. So in, within that arbitrage opportunity, I can create Woodcoin and sell it to you. And I think you know naturally markets get efficient. And so that arbitrage opportunity is going to shrink and get lower and lower and lower. And it was much easier to sell Woodcoin 10 years ago than it is today. And it's going to be much harder to sell Woodcoin 10 years from now than it is today. Um, But I like to call it an arbitrage on the trend. Um, And is it a good thing or a bad thing? It kind of depends on your viewpoint of, you know, do you want a centralized party like a regulated entity like the SEC or something? Uh, saying what should and shouldn't be allowed and what should and isn't, you know, sufficiently decentralized? Probably not. So is this uh, the best way to go about making an efficient marketplace in this industry? Maybe, but it's dangerous, man. It's dangerous. And a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money and uh, they're innocent. And so it sucks. It sucks to see. My problem is... uh, There's a few things I have issues with. One is that Ethereum... Is a is an attempt. It's an experiment with no uh, technical backing as of as of yet to date. Um, there's no proof that what they're trying to do is going to work. 
Um, and so far, it hasn't really worked. However, the marketing is the exact opposite. And that's my huge problem, um, is that it seems that their marketing is malicious, it's misleading, and, and it's intentional. Um, and I wish that they would be more transparent and more honest about that because it's, in return, very damaging to the cryptocurrency space um, when ushering in new users and these users are getting burned and getting an experience that is just false advertising is uh, my first thing. And my second thing is uh, Ethereum, I think, is very damaging to Bitcoin in that same sense uh, in that um, they, they you know claim that the Bitcoin developer community is malicious and mean. Um, they claim that Bitcoin is slow, that Bitcoin isn't cheap, uh, and they really use Bitcoin to uh, self-market themselves. And I think it's selfish. And I think it really, I mean, I myself have spent my entire adult life and career in Bitcoin. And uh, I don't think that, it, that it's fair. And I think, you know, people like Vitalik owe early Bitcoin developers an apology. And I think it's about time someone called him out or maybe, I mean, it's long overdue someone called him out, but I'll put it this way. I'm not scared to call him out. So that's, that's my, you know, high level two minute uh, summary is I, you know, I, I appreciate Ethereum as a project. Do I think it's working? No. Do I think that they're lying in their marketing and they're telling retail investors it's working because they got a funnel in retail somehow? Last time it was ICOs, this time it's DeFi. Yeah, I think that is happening. I think that there are people that are knowingly lying to retail investors and, you know, in the securities industry, that's a, that's a crime. And I think that uh, they have no problem conveniently uh, blasting individuals in the Bitcoin space like Greg Maxwell and Bitcoin the project um, to their own personal gain. And I take that personally because I've dedicated my life to Bitcoin. I really, really don't appreciate that.
So Jack's absolutely right. One of the things Ethereum tries to do to new investors, to people that are coming into the space for the first time, to anybody that will listen, is to use Bitcoin in a bad light. Not to show graciousness for it, not to thank Satoshi, not to do any of those things. It 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 shits on it. It it throws the first knives, right? It doesn't pay respect to it. it never has. Now we're gonna move on to the greatest Ethereum scam ever pulled. And this is gonna be something that is gonna take a little bit of time for the average person to get through, right? This is a conversation between Alexander Sankov an Ethereum and Ethereum Classic developer and also J.W. Weatherman, probably not his real name, but he's a Bitcoiner. And he's going to go literally step by step with this Ethereum and Ethereum Classic developer and explain to him why Ethereum is not what it says it is. Now, as you listen to this conversation, try to keep an open mind. And as you listen to this conversation, try to understand both sides. That's all you really need to do. It's not, it's not to try to convince you one way or another, but try to understand both sides, right? And I think by the end of this, not only will you see why Ethereum clearly is a scam because of the pre-mine, obviously, and because of what Jack has said, obviously, but because of this conversation you're about to hear and why even an Ethereum developer doesn't understand <laughs> basic principles of decentralization or sound money.
And so I got to ride like through one of the craziest like experiences actually in like the DAO world of basically being kind of like closely involved after a certain point of like the thing getting a certain amount of money and then me becoming alarmed um, about the DAO, which kind of if folks don't know, was this kind of like original DAO that called itself the DAO and raised like 14% of the ether and then like had a critical bug in it that like ended up getting exploited and the money was like draining out. And then eventually we kind of had a hard fork to recover the funds from the DAO. And then on Ethereum Classic, the like white hat hackers went and like fought against the attacker to like recover the funds from the DAO and like, like recovered almost all the funds, but not quite all of them. Um, so it was a really interesting saga that played out around the DAO and the DAO hard fork. And, um, and I think it really like has a lot of lessons to teach us about DAOs and the nature of DAOs. And, you know, people don't like to talk about it necessarily too much in the DAO space, I guess, because the DAO hard fork is like widely regarded as like a mistake. But like, personally, in my opinion, it was like the best thing that ever happened in Ethereum. And um, really, really showed, I think, um, the nature of blockchain tech, I think, much better than like the kind of myths that are commonly propagated around blockchain. And then around 2015, when Ethereum launched, uh, it really opened my eyes, and I sort of was very intrigued by the idea of a DAO, so a decentralized organization. So the way that I understand the difference between Bitcoin maximalism and sort of everything else is that people in the Bitcoin maximalist community don't really see a need for these other sorts of digital assets. They believe that Bitcoin can either form the base layer of future smart contract platforms on top of it, or really that's uh, there really is just no market demand or need for, for turn complete, uh, you know, smart contract systems. Yeah, so... <clears throat> You, you said before with Ethereum Classic, the the difference between Ethereum Classic and or, or the, the value proposition of all of these things is the idea of uh, immutability. Another way I would say that to say that would be like government hard smart contracts or something that um, something that would be resistant to regulation and government interference. If we if you and I agree that I'm going to give you, you know, X number of dollars in six months. Um, we put mm-hmm. that into a smart contract. The idea is, you know, you can call it immutability, but um, but the biggest the biggest barrier there is uh, the government making a ruling and saying, no, I don't have to give you that money anymore, um, and having Absolutely. that reversed. So that's why I, I kind of like the term government hard. Mm-hmm. What what is kind of perplexing to me, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm you know I'm trying to go into this with with mm-hmm. good faith. It's really hard for me to to talk to somebody that's that is uh it seems like a competent developer but is a fan of ethereum in the same way it would be hard for me to talk to somebody that's a fan of ripple like it's just it's such an absurdity so i'm, I'm trying well, there's, to- a, there's a huge gulf between what ripple is doing and offering versus what ethereum i don't i don't think doing. so i don't think so i mean i could be wrong but uh but i, well, I there's no I'm like ethereum company or anything that's uh yeah, that's it, behind it that's not really so to so the central issue i think is the value proposition right if the value proposition has any plausibility then it's a viable project that may or may not succeed but if the value proposition is like on its face stupid then mm-hmm. you might put it into the scam category and so yeah. with something like ethereum it's obvious at this point, like with reference to the DAO hack, that it was not government hard, right? Because 
um, the idea of, hey, we're going to create this contract and it's, go- it's not going to be reversed, you know, reversed, even if the government forces us to. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then Vitalik decides that he doesn't like that. So he tells everybody mm-hmm. stop trading. Um, mm-hmm. And it just reveals that he does, in fact, have the power to determine what the software is going to be, which, um, which is not, it's not even Vitalik hard, let alone government hard. Right. Um, Absolutely. So, so, but the, the fact that that could happen is more important than the fact that it did happen. Right. The fact that it did happen, like getting hacked just reveals that you were weak, right? You had a security Mm. flaw in the first place. So that's one of the things that's perplexing to me about the Ethereum Classic crew is that they took Mm. this code that had already been proved to be broken and they said, well, we're going to be nice, right? We're going to pretend that that it's not weak and and run with it. And if somebody wants to overwrite it, they can can fork it or whatever. Um, Yeah. But go ahead. No, just to just to kind of interject there. So just to, what the, happened with the DAO is that the DAO was an application running on top of the Ethereum network, and that application was hacked. Right, not the, the underlying. The, yeah, the, the I mean, from the perspective of Ethereum, it doesn't matter. From the perspective of Ethereum, there were some transactions that Vitalik didn't like, and as a result, mm-hmm. those transactions went away. Right. So that, yeah. that shows yeah, yeah. you that it's not government hard. And and the reason Agreed. for that yeah. with Ethereum, the reason for mm-hmm. that is that the amount of proof of work that was being invested to secure those transactions was insufficient. Um, and ultimately, proof of work on Ethereum is just used as security theater, right? Um, on Bitcoin, yeah. the reason that we can't have that happen is that there's just too much money that's been invested to secure and confirm those transactions. It's truly distributed. No person can say, hey, flip that switch and three or four exchanges flip the switch. Um mm-hmm. So that revealed the true nature of Ethereum. Like for for a technical person, you could have looked at Ethereum and said, "Oh, they're not they're not burning a whole lot of electricity here, and they're not doing it um, at the height of human capability." So if I wanted to, I could attack that network. I could use proof of work if I invest in some ASICs and change the the transactions, or I can grab Vitalik by his skinny little neck and just tell him to say things. So. From from a like a security researcher standpoint, if they were looking at it, they could have discovered this without it actually happening, right? Just like I can look at code or I can look at a, a design and say that's broken before it gets hacked. But yeah, what was nice about the DAO attack or the DAO hack or whatever um, is that it just revealed the reality even to laymen, right? Like it's very obvious to a layperson. Um, that Ethereum is not secure because Vitalik just said what he wants the rules to be, and that's what the rules were. So then Ethereum Classic spins off, and they 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 make some corrections here and there, but ultimately they don't um, they don't acknowledge the distinction between Ethereum and Bitcoin. And that distinction is you use proof of work in a truly uh, a significant way to provide security, not as security theater, right? Um, and so they just ended up doing something very similar, right? I mean, they, they yeah. all of the same flaws that applied to Ethereum, uh, with a few exceptions where they decided that they were going to change the code to more closely emulate Bitcoin. All those flaws are still there, right? If, if you, uh, well, I, if you look at you, it. Yeah, I, I just actually, I'm going to disagree with you on that point that the proof of work is security theater. 
And I'm going to point to something which may sound kind of funny, but I think kind of proves it is that. So, you know, uh, Ethereum Classic was recently 51 percent attacked. Right. And to me, you know, at first glance, that was horrible. Like it was actually very interesting to see this happen because, you know, I'm running a dApp on there and, you know, users start coming to me like, oh, my God, is this system broken? We're under 51 percent attack. What does that mean? So. Basically, what happened is, is that the entire network became uh, inaccessible for a period of time because there was a malicious chain that was being mined in secret and that was deployed. And then that uh, basically caused everything else and what we thought was the legitimate chain to just immediately be dropped because the nodes select the longest chain or the heaviest proof of work. So in my opinion, the 51% attack proved that the Ethereum Classic network will simply obey the system with the most proof of work attached or with the most proof of work generated. So in my opinion, it, it's not security that's theater. Not, that's and not the purpose of proof of work. The pr- proof of work is not to show that proof of work is popular. Proof of work is to secure the network. And the fact that an attacker can come in and blow your network away for a period of time and spend very little money shouldn't be reassuring to you. It should reveal to you that your network is indeed not secure. Exactly. Well, and and basically my response was to author the ECIP 1049 proposal. Which which, changed the proof of work. And if that happens... Mm-hmm. Then it will be revealed that you're the little Vitalik, that you're the one that's saying, okay, we were using proof of work. That's obviously not working because attackers can just come in and kick the crap out of us if they want. So we're going to change the proof of work. Monero has done the same thing. And all that, yeah, and, and I, that, I don't, all yeah. that reveals is that this is indeed security theater because you're not using proof of work to secure the network to prevent attackers from messing with transactions. Because when things don't go the way that you want, then you just change the proof of work. Well, why don't well, you not just change yeah. the proof of work? Why doesn't Alex just send an email out to everybody saying, hey, these are the transactions? So what, I, what I'm trying to propose in the proposal is that we drop this whole ASIC resistant myth. Like that, that, in my opinion, was the biggest issue that I discovered is that Ethereum by default was using this algorithm called ETHash which is supposedly an ASIC resistant hashing algorithm. And I didn't know anything about ETHash before this 51% attack happened. I was just a software developer on top of it. And then I started looking into it. And oh, wait, me, wait a second. that was really interesting. So what you just said yeah. is, so I've only been in this space for a little bit over a year and it's, it's hard to figure out who everybody is. So yeah. what you just said, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I do because that I feel like that might be really key to helping me understand you. Yeah, You were building on top of Ethereum. You didn't even know what ASIC resistance was or uh, why they selected a proof of work algorithm until just recently, even though you've been building on top of it for a few years, because that's like... If I was to give you a similar analogy, it would be like a developer building Facebook. They don't really care about TCP IP. They're yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that that is totally correct. So that's so that, that just makes me want to weep because it's Why? so sad that if that's true, that they have indeed attracted, you know, good people through their marketing efforts to be this deceived and in, into actually wanting to build on Ethereum. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's a, to me, it's more analogous to a Microsoft uh, application developer who's building, let's say, a computer game on top of Windows, doesn't yeah. necessarily know how Windows the, handles network drivers yeah. and stuff like that. But if that's true, what sucks about that from my perspective is that it's, well, one, it, it takes you out of the scammer category. And puts you in the just a good dude trying to build useful stuff category. And that's yeah. tragic because um, because you're you're investing in building on something that's a fraud. If you were building on Windows, um, I might say, ah oh, man, that's a bad call because the licensing is gonna kill you. You should really look at, you know, MySQL over SQL or something mm-hmm. like that. But if mm-hmm. you're building on Ripple, that mm-hmm. is just a tragedy, right? Because you're, yeah. you're, you're, and Ethereum is Ripple, um, and I think we'll, we'll, Ethereum Classic is Ripple. Now, now I'm hopeful that this will actually be no. a productive yeah. conversation, and we'll, we'll get somewhere. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So just, just to go back real fast, just because I, I think that this was interesting because there's this. So I, I had this pro. I basically discovered this ETHash algorithm, and I was looking into the history of it, and to me, what I found terrifying. It was basically this homebrew hashing algorithm that was created by Vitalik and a few other guys where it was very poorly documented, very poorly tested, et cetera. And I started entering this world of what are called like ASIC resistant algorithms. And in my opinion, I'm starting to call them backyard cryptography because they're incredibly like amateurish work. So what I like so much about the ETC community is that I basically came to them and said, look, we inherited this horrible algorithm when we launched Ethereum Classic because of the split. Let's go back and let's change this algorithm to something else. And since then, we've had tremendously productive discussions and I'm working right now on a test net to be able to, to, to fix that problem. So, so how about this? How about we go yeah. through... Um, because I think, I think what's happened is, I mean, this, this is my understanding. I'll put it out there. They were designed as a fraud from day one. They had no intention of actually building smart contracts. Uh, Vitalik met with Adam back. He could tell that he wasn't going to be able to make as much money as if he just launched his own scam coin. So he decided to go that route. They were very, no, 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 I'm, I'm saying my understanding, right? Yeah. And I'm going to make the case for this over this conversation, right? Yeah. Um, so they launched this garbage. And the reason that you discovered it was garbage, in my opinion, is that it's all garbage start to finish. And then you uh, you started becoming aware that it's garbage. And then there was this other net of scammers called Ethereum Classic that were waiting with open arms to snatch you up. And now you're now you're engaged with, with these jokers. So what I want to do is I want to just go through every single design decision between Bitcoin and Ethereum slash Ethereum Classic. And I think that if we do that, at the end of this, you'll realize that every single design decision that was made that varied from Bitcoin was not done uh, with good interest. It wasn't done to build you a platform so you could actually build applications. It was done for marketing and because it was a more efficient scam. And it actually, at every single turn, introduced security flaws that make ethereum and everything that ethereum classic inherited from ethereum flawed definitely man all right let, let's go through those ones okay, so, so the, first, the yeah. first one that's really obvious that we already jumped into is asic resistance yeah, yeah. so and 
The, the, just for everybody that's listening, if you go out to 10hoursofbitcoin.com and you scroll down about halfway down the page, um, there's a link to the Bitcoin threat model. And the Bitcoin threat model basically is going to go through all the different ways that you could attack Bitcoin, and it has the safeguards that apply there. I did a very high-level uh, version of this for Ethereum uh, a year ago, but you're better off if you have a favorite scam coin or altcoin or you know, Bitcoin 2.0, however you think of it, um, take that threat model and just ask yourself those questions and how they apply to, to your favorite, favorite, you know, coin of the day. Um, and that's, that's essentially what we're going to do here, but that's a more systematic, uh, systematic doc that you guys can use for reference that will reveal that things like Ethereum and Ripple are fraudulent. So, so let's start with ASIC resistance. Cause we we're already talking about that. Um, the basic concept there and is that, um, Bitcoin used a very simple proof of work algorithm that, um, it's a good way to think of it is it's really easy to automate to the point of even being able to build specialized hardware because it's a very simple it's a very simple math formula that you solve or a math problem that you solve to get to the answer to prove that you've done that and that's that's what secures the network so the scammers uh, and many scammers have realized this um, the scammers realize that that's that's good for security, but it's not necessarily good for marketing because when you're marketing a scam coin, you want people to be able to mine it. Um, you want people to be able to use their laptop, you know, whatever they've got laying around and mine it, even if it's not uh, good for the security of the network, which it isn't because it's if if you know we have fifty laptops. Um, and then I can build specialized hardware and just obliterate you. Uh, that's that's not good from a security standpoint. Um, so that's that's one of the design decisions that the Ethereum guys made is they said, okay, we're going to use a, a proof of work algorithm that's basically harder to automate. It in the long run, people would build specialized hardware for it, but it slows that process and keeps the network less secure for longer. But it also has the positive effect of encouraging participation among the soon-to-be scammed. Um, so that, that's, that's one design decision that that varies from. And, and just to actually add on to that, because I'm in complete agreement with you, and in, in that these algorithms, these ASIC-resistant algorithms, are also like unsafe in that you can. F- might be able to find hash collisions within right. them. So right. SHA-256, SHA-3 have all been certified after decades of peer-reviewed research and testing to not have hash collisions. Right. And a lot of these weird algorithms like Equihash, S-Crypt, ETHash, et cetera, have not gone through any of that testing. And so it makes in sense my idea, that they wouldn't because of the motivation, right? The motivation isn't actually to build something secure. It's to build something that's popular and eventually will die, but it will die profitably for the initial group of scammers. Um, so that's, that theme will continue pretty much. I mean, uh, all of that code is, is terrible. Um, all of the design decisions are terrible. Okay. So, so hit yeah. me with something else where Ethereum and, and let's actually. Yeah. So. Uh, so, here's where I think, so, so, yeah, so I think that the biggest variance right now has to do with the actual execution model of code on there. So Bitcoin uses, uh, it has smart contract ability via Bitcoin script and pay to script hash, but none of those are Turing complete. You can't write a while loop on Bitcoin. But you can do that on Ethereum because Ethereum uses a different execution model 
uh, which uses gas as the limiting factor to deal with the fact that these things could potentially run forever. And that allows you to do things as a developer on Ethereum that you cannot do on Bitcoin. Okay. So, so this, this is I'll give you, yeah, I'll no, give this, you an example of, of something that's big that you literally cannot do on Bitcoin. Yeah, which no, is, there's, a, there's yeah. a ton of things. Yeah. Like, I'll, I'll give you that. I think you set that up. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so Bitcoin has a much simpler scripting language. It's much less flexible and powerful than what Ethereum offers right now. Yeah. But the reason for that is not that they found a way to do that securely. They didn't find a way to create a government hard um, way to write smart contracts. What they did is they found a way to do it very poorly and low quality and introduce a ton of security issues. But again, it was very, very attractive. So they made it very much JavaScript. You know, anybody that can write JavaScript can jump on and start writing smart contracts. The problem is that. Um, one, the programming language was terrible. Um, and two, it wasn't, um, it didn't account for a lot of things that you would have to account for, but because they're just taking advantage of people's ignorance again, they didn't have to do that. So for example, if we, if we were going to do this, if we had this government hard blockchain and we wanted to have more flexible programming on top of it, one of the things that we would have to do. Um, and you alluded to this, is we would have to know before we execute the contract, before we execute the code, how much, how many resources that code is going to use up. Um, and in order to do that, we would have to have a really well-designed programming language. Um, it would also have to be a programming language that was very... Uh, um, uh, that, that was like had formal proofs associated with it, right? Because we're not going to take something like JavaScript and pretend that this is suitable for million dollar applications without vetting all the way down to, you know, the, the basic math level of what's happening here, right? So, so let me just, let me just clarify right now. I'm personally, people talk all the time about this formal derivations of code and formal stuff. And, you know, my personal thing is that a lot of that is, mainly talk and security theater. I think that many people that are talking about formal derivations have no experience doing formal derivations. And I don't think that it's necessary in order to be able to write good smart contracts. So people talk a lot too about solidity. You were calling it like a JavaScript type language. And I would agree that maybe two years ago, solidity was pretty poorly designed. And that was just simply because the developers of Solidity, the language writers didn't know the right way to do smart contracts. You know, people are learning no, 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 as we're going on. That's, that's not true because it's not that they were ignorant. Like this is, this is another perfect example. It's not that they were ignorant when they decided to do ASIC resistance. They knew that ASIC resistance was a myth. Anybody that, that is slightly technically competent and gives it more than 15 minutes of thought realizes, well, wait a minute. It doesn't make sense that we could come up with a math problem that's not going to be solved better with specialized hardware. That's like you have to be very, very um, gullible to buy that. That's what they were thinking. A lot, people people a lot of people do. A lot of people do. The people do believe but people that made billions of dollars on that deception and on that lie, they're not stupid enough to have made that money accidentally. They knew what they were doing. They, they were, people explained to them what they were doing. When, when people like Adam Backer on Twitter and will answer your question, if you're Vitalik, 
you know, within 24 hours and explain exba- exactly why this is stupid. These people had access to the resources to know the answer, right? And I've interacted with a lot yeah, of people in the last year. But and when I just they want to interject here that people, like, if I could go ask Adam back a question about building on Ethereum Classic, he has a huge conflict of interest. Like, it, it, he, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it does because no, it, I, it's he just developed on Bitcoin because he holds a lot of Bitcoin. That's okay. Big, not necessarily because it might be the best computational standard. But that's not the problem because when when they answer questions, when the Bitcoin guys explain to you stuff like ASIC resistance is impossible because, and then they articulate that really clearly, you can understand that ASIC resistance is a myth without trusting that they are they have your best interest in mind. And that applies to a lot of things, right? When somebody says, hey, I'm going to use JavaScript to build a smart contracting language. There's people from all kinds of walks of life that will say, we don't even use JavaScript for relatively important financial transactions now. It's an inappropriate People aren't using JavaScript. Solidity is not JavaScript. I I just want to make that clear. It's very JavaScript-like. No, 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 no. There's two I, I, trust me, I've written a lot of JavaScript and I've written a lot of Solidity. They're very different looking languages. Solidity is much closer to like a C. It's typed. You've got a lot of keywords in there that do not exist in JavaScript. And it's very different. Why do you think that they chose Solidity? Well, they created Solidity. It wasn't just something that was chosen. They've created a new Why language. Why did they create Solidity the way they created it? Did they create it because it was what security people would have recommended as an approach and it was going to be really hard, but it was the right way to go. Or did they choose it because it was going to appeal to people like you and suck them in and encourage them to immediately start building applications? I think that they looked at it and they said, how do we create the lowest barrier to entry for people to start writing smart contracts? Exactly. That was how they started. But you have to acknowledge that. Wait a second. You have to acknowledge that that is diametrically opposed to doing it the right way. You can have it fast or you can have it cheap, but you can't have it fast and cheap is a universal axiom of engineering. And when they decided that they were going to have it fast and easy, they gave up on having it secure, right? I, I, would, I would give to you somewhat that, uh, that there could have been better design of solidity in the beginning, specifically with focusing on explicitness. So I think that the criticisms against solidity that make the most sense is that it makes too many assumptions on the part of the developer. Okay, well, we're going to go through all yeah, of these design yeah. decisions, right? Like, yeah. we're, we're going to go through every single But one these are all things that, like, I mean, when you were introducing it, you're saying that they're making these conscious, you know, fraudulent decisions to try to deceive people. No, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that it's a very new field, a very listen, new man, computational you can substrate. Have, you can have yeah. that perspective right now because we've only yeah. gone through two design decisions, okay? Okay, but the first yeah. one it's very obvious that any 13-year-old with three hours of Googling can realize ASIC resistance is a scam, and they went with that, right? The second one, I'll give you, it's not as clear, but most people are going to be able to figure out exactly what you said, that they, they went with a design decision that was going to allow people to get up and running on it with the least amount of friction, and that that is opposed to building something uh, the right way. Right. So now we've only covered yeah. two design decisions. When we get to design decision 14 
And every uh-huh. single one of these design decisions is right for scamming and wrong for security. That's when you're going to start sounding like a crazy person for saying, oh, I'm giving these guys the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, it just, I mean, to me, okay, all right, let, let's go. So we're, so, de, so design decision number two is that you're saying that Solidity was poorly designed at the beginning of its life. Therefore, Ethereum is a scam. Is, is that the point so, that you're making? So there's, there's a list of things that you would do if you wanted to do it correctly. Because I think Solidity is, to be honest, people talk so much bad stuff about Solidity nowadays. I know for a fact that there are amazing smart contracts that literally are storing hundred million plus dollars. So that means there's a hundred million dollar bug bounty on their head right now. And they've survived for two plus years, no, last, more like a year plus. And the they haven't been that, hacked yet. So if you show me something that has a built in bug bounty of a hundred million dollars and it's coded in solidity and it's kept surviving, I'm going to say that solidity is pretty damn good. That's a, I, I could understand how you would think that, but that's not yeah. a, that's not a reasonable perspective to have on this code because a lot of the parts of the contract are not in play yet. Right. So just because something hasn't been hacked yet, doesn't mean that when people try to take the money out or they try to execute part of it, it's not going to be hacked at that point in time. If it's just sitting there or it's not well, being fully executed, that's not yeah. necessarily evidence that it's secure. What I will yeah, say but there's is there's a huge bounty built into it. But again, so, if you have yeah. if you have a two of three multi-sig, for example, and yeah. the bug only applies when you try to actually take the money out. Right. Let's say you yeah. create a two of three multi-sig and it turns mm-hmm. out that if you use both of the, you know, the, the, the uh, two private keys in order to execute it, that it becomes anybody can get the money situation. Well, if somebody yeah. doesn't actually try to take the money out, this is a very simplistic example, but if somebody yeah. doesn't actually try to take the money out, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hacked. It doesn't mean that it's, it's really secure. It just means that the vulnerability hasn't been exposed yet. The features haven't actually gone into play yet. Um, so I think there's there, the, the, you could you could way overestimate the security of the network based on you know a few few errors like that. It has a terrible history though, right? There's no question. Like until a year ago, I don't even think there was a two of three multi sig available on Simplicity because the designer of the programming language himself built one that turned out to be flawed. And that's the most simple contract. So we're talking within the last 12 months, the designer of the language could not write the simplest smart contract in a secure and effective way. That's that's yeah. not exactly, um, uh, th- that's a pretty bad sign, right? What, whatever else you might say, that's that's not, that's well, not there, exactly. There are, there are uh, multi-sig implementations on Ethereum nowadays that are that are good but hey i'll grant it to you that uh you know the parody hack that happened um okay so yeah, that was so a, that was a huge example of solidity had a bad default in the sense that it made uh, it allowed anybody to destroy a contract people lost a lot of money because of an improperly written um multi-sig wallet implementation so i'll completely give it to you that you know there are some bad contracts out there but okay, if so, you look so at the, yeah, this is yeah, what I'm there's also about. lots of good ones. Yeah, I don't I don't want to beat on like we made a bad implementation decision because what I want to beat on is the design. The high level design decisions at every stage of the game were wrong. And uh-huh. um, 
when we get to the end of this, you won't be able to point out a single one that was right. And I will have explained how every single one was bad. And, and yeah. that, that's where I think um, you'll, you'll be at a point where maybe you'll start going, all right, maybe I should start building on, on Bitcoin or helping build Bitcoin um, to yeah. get it to the point where I want it to be. So yeah. it's not just that there's flaws in it. It's that they, they, they made a de decision on the type of programming language they were going to build. Now, let's go through a few of the things, a few of the requirements that, that would apply to a programming language if you wanted to do it in a way that was going to make it um, the, the most secure, right? So you might have questions about formal proofs. Um, you might think that a lot of people that like formal proofs are overstating them or something like that. But you have to acknowledge that if you have code, that is, if you have a language that is backed by formal proofs, that's better from a security standpoint than one that's not. If the formal proofs are written correctly, then I yes. think you're right. If even, they're written correctly. Even if they're, even if they're written incorrectly, from a security person standpoint, I would say even if there's a mistake made, that's the right thing to do. And you decrease your chances of making a mistake by doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah the there are formal proofs on Ethereum. So if you go to the MakerDAO purple paper, they have a Haskell implementation of all of their code that they've been formally proving. Um, they ju you just simply can't right now compile Haskell into EVM bytecode. No, no, so you can't no, run no, Haskell there. See, this, is, this is like game yeah. play, right? There's a difference yeah. between going and trying to put formal proofs on after the fact and actually designing a program. Like when Scala was designed, right? Um, when Lisp was designed, there were formal proofs involved from the very beginning, trying to make sure that this stuff actually, that the very building blocks of like addition and things like this, like the very smallest functions, there was an effort to make sure that they, they were correct. And formal proofs and mathematics is the way that you do that, right? And so even if you make a mistake in your math, at least you're doing it the right way. At least you're starting by saying, okay, we're going to try to make sure that our underlying assumptions here work. Because any it's like building a house. Any mistake you make in the beginning is going to be amplified later on. That's just the right approach, right? Whether you make a mistake or not, it's better to build the foundation first, even if you end up building a cracked one. So... Formal proofs would be one of the things that you would do if you were building a programming language that was going to secure hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you, do you agree with that? Does C have formal proofs associated with it? That's when I, they launched it in the 70s. Because so are, are you saying secure. no? Are you saying yeah, no? I'm saying, I'm saying personally, it doesn't matter to me. I, okay. I don't care about formal proofs because okay. I don't think that they're properly written most of the time. But so you don't even yeah. think that, I mean, if you're going to build, we're not talking about, this is not 1970 and we're building something that's going to calculate payroll tax. And if it gets it off, well, then you just adjust it later, right? We're talking about building something that is supposed to be so secure that the, the governments of the world can't break it. And you're telling me, ah, formal proofs is just, that's kind of, it's not even worth trying. You don't need to do that. I would say it's worth trying if if okay. You that's can, all I need. Yeah, I, I, if it's, it's definitely. I don't want to. Okay. I don't want to tell anybody don't do something. You know, don't work on formal proofs if that's what interests you. I'm just going to say that most of the time, when someone tells me, "Oh, we formally proved X, Y, Z," I just don't believe them. That's uh, true because I don't I'm think they've for, done it properly. Right. So what, I'm, what yeah. I'm saying is, there's certain things that an intelligent person would look for 
in a programming language that's designed to secure this amount of money. And one of the check boxes would be, did you work with formal proofs in the beginning as you were designing the language? Sure, sure. Okay. I, I, so, yeah. so Ethereum yeah, yeah. absolutely did not do that, right? They didn't go down that path. Yeah, uh, and so I'm that, saying it doesn't matter. You're saying that it does matter. So well, you, you just said that it should be done. I'm saying that it's a nice to have. I'm okay. saying it's not necessary. Okay, well, it's it's a it's a nice to have. It's a decision that you would mm. prefer that they had made rather than not make. You would prefer. I personally don't care. Well, a nice to have is like you know uh, something that you'd rather have than not have. A nice to have in Ethereum would be that I can deploy sixteen million gas smart contracts, but I don't have that right now. I can only do eight million. Okay, let's so let's there's plenty the of nice to haves that let's, I that let's I don't. Go to the have. next thing. So yeah, I, I'm saying from yeah. a security researcher standpoint, somebody yeah. built a new language. I, I'm saying with confidence that they should do some formal proofs in the beginning. Here's yeah. another here's another problem mm-hmm. that you're going to have if you don't do something um, very systematic from the ground up. Yeah. One of the one of the keys here for being able to build smart contracts that are going to run no matter what is to make mm-hmm. sure that they're properly funded. Right. If you don't fund a smart contract, then it's no longer going to function the way it was designed, and people could lose hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. What What do you? I mean, what do you mean by funding a smart contract? So, so there's fees associated with Bitcoin transactions, um, or uh-huh. using up, let's say, computational energy, u- using up resources of the network. We have to have some yeah. fee structure, right? So, in Ethereum, yeah. gas and Bitcoin, it's just fees. Um, yeah. Bitcoin fees. So if I write a smart contract and I, uh-huh. I want to know that I'm going to get my money, right? I write a contract. We both put in $50 million. If, um, you know, at the end of the year, I get all the money, right? W- whatever. Yeah. I want to know that when that contract goes to run to give me that $100 million, it's going to freaking run because it doesn't yeah. matter how well I've written it. If I don't have enough fee or whatever, and the contract just stalls. Right. That's that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, it, you there's no smart contract deletion in Ethereum. Well, I mean, technically, you could if you wrote the smart contract in a horrible way, but there is no smart contract deletion of I, del- I wrote a smart contract and then it disappeared. So that, that, it's always fine. there. Fine, but I'm not I'm not even talking. You just about need to pay the money. execution cost of when you're doing that second transaction. That, well, that's the only thing you have to pay. But I need to know what uh-huh. the execution cost is going to be because computers you can pre-compute that. You, you okay. can pre-compute well, computers that. Computers are funny, and if there's an error, that error could be you know uh, the difference between a fee of five dollars and a fee of five hundred million dollars, and then all of a sudden my smart contract is underwater, right? So, so what I'm saying is, is that we do need to be able to pre-compute that. And not only do we need to be able to do it, but we need to be able to do it with a high degree of confidence that we know what that cost is going to be beforehand. You absolutely can do that. Okay. I I can tell you as a developer, I can encode into when I deploy a smart contract, I know how much it costs in terms of gas for every function call in that contract. Okay. But you also want to use a Turing complete programming language. And that is a contradiction. You can't have a Turing complete programming language and be absolutely certain how much it's going to cost to execute a chunk of code. Because what Turing complete means is that mm-hmm. it could uh, is that we don't know how much it's going to cost until we actually execute it, right? 
in order to verify yeah. it, you have to execute it. Yeah. So no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So one of the one of the key design decisions that uh, you would have to make if you wanted to have a um, a fairly predictable fee is that you wouldn't want it to be Turing complete. That would be uh, that would be a problem. That would be a yeah. Flaw. Okay, great. Now <laughs> I mean, we're, okay, we're, okay. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But in my opinion, I, basically, what I I think that you're doing is you're saying, okay, well. Bitcoin is black and white, as in there's a lot that you can't do, and there's a lot that, and there's some that you can do. And Ethereum is a little more gray, therefore gray is completely worthless and a scam for reasons X, Y, and Z. We're not talking about Bitcoin. I I just don't want to agree to these things. That in practice, I've been coding up lots of smart contracts that have dealt with millions of dollars worth of Ethereum and have had thousands of users and. I have not had to deal with the problems that you're supposedly telling me about that you've come up with in your security researcher, you know, ivory tower. If you think that there's insecurity on the Ethereum blockchain, we'll hack the contracts yourself and get the hundred million dollars worth of ether out of that, sell that for Bitcoin. Well, I, so that's I, a good question. What do you think? Would yeah, happen? You're just saying, I'll, what do you yeah. think would happen if I did hack a hundred million dollar smart contract on Ethereum? Oh, we I know th- what would yeah. happen, my friend. Vitalik yeah. would say that didn't happen because all this whole thing is security theater and it ultimately comes down to him and a small group of people deciding what transactions are valid. So as a security researcher, am I highly motivated to go steal his ETH? No, yeah. it's Ripple. It's a centralized database controlled by Vitalik. So and, don't and that's confused. why I'm not, I'm not advocating for ETH. This, don't get confused and think that there really is a $100 million bounty there. Because well, that's why I'm in ETC. You, okay, I'm not well, here defending Ethereum. I'm, I'm, I'm saying the most important just, part of ETC is if you can hack the contracts on ETC and take that, uh, take the ETC out of that, then you get to keep that. That's the beauty of the system. So, um, one of the problems with so from the standpoint yeah. of a security researcher, if I have yeah. Ethereum, there's a lot of money on there, but we already know what's going to yeah. happen. It'll be reversed. If I hack ETC, you guys are nothing at this point. There's not that much value there. So it's really You not- could have said the same thing about Bitcoin in 2010. That's that, not the that, point, that. dude. The point is you're making the claim that there's this huge bug bounty on Ethereum that proves that Ethereum smart contracts are legit. I just explained to you that that's false. Then you turned around and said, well- do it on Ethereum Classic. And I said, well, there's no money there. And now you're saying, well, you could make the same. Like, uh, I don't, I don't well, want because to you're, you're Well, yeah, here's yeah. what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying is that you're proposing these issues. So I'm a complete supporter of the Ethereum execution model. That, that's what I'm trying to defend. I think that the way that ETH, the way that ETC, the way that proof of authority, the way that all these chains executes smart contracts, I'm a big fan of. Now, the way that the individual networks, the way that the Ethereum network handles its blockchain, where it reverses things once there's a hack, I have a huge problem with. That's why I'm in ETC, because I don't think that anything should ever be reversed or deleted off of the blockchain. That's that's my core right. reason. But I still will defend Ethereum's design decisions in terms of how it deploys smart contracts and the way that those smart contracts run. That's fine. Just don't defend them in a dishonest way. Don't tell me that 
that they're secure because they have $100 million there. When you know that if I did take that $100 million, I wouldn't be able to actually get it. Sure, sure. I'm just saying, I'll, don't I'll, concede that. I'll concede that to you, but fine. Then I'll just simply say that go after smart contracts on ETC then. If, if you really believe that you can find all these issues with the platform and you're a security researcher and you know how to do this stuff, fine, make money off of it and hack the contracts yourself. So and that's I what I'm saying. Why I wouldn't bother yeah. to put the work into ETC at this point. I promise you that if you guys get several billion dollars worth of money floating around on ETC and it's in parody or something that it's yeah. either me or somebody else will do you that solid. But right yeah. now you're just not worth the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that'll change in the future because I think that more and more Ethereum people are starting to think the way that I am, which is we love the EVM. We like solidity. We like all of these things, but we don't like the fact that the ETH Foundation and the big players can kind of control what stays on the blockchain. And that's why they're going to move over to ETC because they see the value in that. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think so. I think that they're all scammers. And uh, so they're going to scam the coins that they have. But I, can, I understand. Can, can you just tell me what you mean by scammer? Because I hear you're using that word a lot. And yeah, I want to just fully understand what you mean by scammer. Sure. It's somebody that tries to get you to invest or give you money uh, through deception. So it, it's people that will do things like say, hey, we're going to use this proof of work algorithm because it's ASIC resistant, knowing that it's not that would be somebody that's a scammer. Okay. And what about the idea of people making honest mistakes? Do you not acknowledge the existence of that ability to, to make an honest mistake? As in, I am telling you to the best of my knowledge, this is what I think is the case. Sure. And I, I think that that's, I think that happens. But when you look at something like Ethereum and they made 45 design decisions, and we've already gone through six, I think, at this point. And every single design decision was the wrong one if you wanted to build something useful and the right one if you wanted to market and scam. And they consistently go to the right one or the wrong one. After about six, I start saying, you know what? Even an idiot makes the right decision sometimes. And these guys have consistently made the wrong decision. So the odds with every single decision that goes to the wrong direction goes down that they're not doing it on purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I totally see what you're saying. Look, I, I actually am somewhat partial to what you're saying, but I think that where we disagree is that I don't think that those supposed design flaws, like you're talking about them are actually problematic and anyone that are problematic, like ASIC resistance, I think they're honest mistakes that were made in 2015 before anybody really understood fully what smart contracts are capable of. Do you know what, what these things are going to look like? Do you know what his, his I mean, supposedly he's yeah. like a boy genius, right? Like uh, Bill Gates of, uh, do you know if he has ever been a, a competent developer in the past or like where he sort of made his money? Like what kind of projects was he involved with before he started Ethereum? I know that he was working originally on Bitcoin magazine, getting paid, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 Bitcoin per article or something like that back in 2011. And that yeah. was one of his revenue streams. Yeah. So that was something that he was doing. Um, he was never a very well-respected developer or architect or engineer. Um, he was a writer for, for that magazine. Another big project that he was involved with was 
um, a project to do a quantum computer simulator. Um, and he raised a bunch of money for that. And the idea was that building a quantum computer is really, really hard. But if you can simulate a quantum computer, then you get all the benefits without any of the cost. Do you think that he was confused back then when he did that project? Honestly, I think that's, I think that that's his, in, in my opinion, I am a libertarian when it comes to investment. That's between him and his investors. And if his investors believed that he could potentially do that and he wasn't able to do that, that's their problem. And I'm just not, I don't care because the source code for Ethereum is completely open. He, I'm not taking anything that he's saying on faith. I'm just looking at what the code that's been written is. So I, I really don't want to go. A minute ago, you were yeah. arguing that all of these bad design decisions were accidents and, and mm -hmm. they had nothing but the best of intentions, but they just made some ignorant choices. Um, and then when I mentioned that he has a history of scamming and it's a scam that's very obvious to you, now you're no longer. Well, so, so you're introducing, you're introducing, okay, so let's go to this quantum computing thing. So, so what was the name of this company? It, it doesn't even matter, right? Because what you just exposed is that you're willing to jump around uh, very, you're very fluid, right? So you're one minute you can argue that somebody's not a scammer. The next minute you're like, I that's I'm a libertarian. I have no interest whether he's a scammer or not. That's weird, man. That's I'm not saying a, that I'm saying that you're scammer. you're okay. You're putting on this hat where literally anything that isn't perfect from day one and let's say doesn't work. So nine out of ten startups fail. Probably even more than that. You're saying that all of those startups are scams because they didn't end up wildly successful. No. And I'm saying, no. yeah, retrospect no, is 2020. Yeah. Okay. What I said so is- So you're bringing up Vitalik's mean, quantum computing. See, I mean, uh, look, look, this conversation oh, oh, yeah. is really tiresome because you're doing, you're doing a lot of uh, rhetoric and tricks, right? You're putting words in my mouth. You're straw manning me. You asked me what is a scammer. I gave you a definition okay. of scammer that was very clear. And then you just gave me a definition of scammer that I gave you that's 180 degrees off of that. What definition of scammer did I give you when I said what a scammer? So in my opinion, a scammer, I'll tell you no, what I'm I not asking that. I'm not asking okay. that. We're going to wrestle each one of these little tricks that you're doing all the way to the ground until you either get honest or hang up. What definition of scammer did I give you? You said a scammer is somebody that when other people tell them the right design decision and they don't follow that decision, then, and it doesn't work, then therefore they're a scammer. All right. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're not playing games with me. No, that's not what I said. What I said- Okay, then what did you say? It's somebody that intentionally deceives somebody else to get their money. It's somebody that, for example, and I gave this example, tells people that we're building something that's ASIC resistant because that will get them to invest. Meanwhile, they know it's impossible to build something that's ASIC resistant. That, yeah, that's and, what I'm saying. And you're saying that knows it's impossible to be ASIC resistant is false. I don't think that people know all of this stuff beforehand. I think things become apparent over time. When Alex, you actually attempt to do it, it's it's highly unlikely that somebody made all of these mistakes and all of these mistakes were profitable mistakes. It's highly unlikely that all of these wrong decisions came together in order to put that much money in Vitalik's pocket. And they're all the wrong decision 
but they're all ones that help with marketing and help with with acquiring new investors. You keep saying wrong decisions. I don't even think some of the decisions that you're saying are quote unquote wrong or even that wrong. You're you keep like no yeah. I I don't think that solidity is a bad language. You even though you're supposedly saying, oh, well, there's no formal proofs of it, therefore it's bad. And I'm telling you, I disagree with it. And I'm telling you that DAP users, because they're putting their own funds into these contracts, also disagree with it. And then you're saying, oh, well, you're using rhetorical tricks. No, I'm a business person in this space. I'm working on code. I'm writing smart contracts. I'm working with people that are doing startups. And it's up to the consumers whether or not they want to use these uh, financial tools in order to solve problems. And I think that they, and they are. So now, now listen, I just we don't see through, where the scamming is going. We went going through systematically through a bunch of different decisions and at each stage of the game, right? For example, formal proofs or a language where we can be confident, certain how much resources are going to be required to execute the contract beforehand, right? We, we went yeah. through each one of these things and you agreed that either it's critical or it would be better. It would be better. I, I'm not no, going to disagree with you on I that. Said it would be single, better. Okay. So there's a lot of things that would be every better. Single but one who's going to come up with the money to pay for developers to be able to do those quote unquote better things? Code doesn't get written for free. So here, here's the thing every single yeah. one of those things where it would be better from a security standpoint. Right. Yeah. Again, we're not talking about calculating payroll taxes. We're talking about something far more. And that was like the most sensitive stuff that was done back in the 70s. Right. We're talking calculating about payrolls huge, by the way. I, so it I is, don't even understand what you're saying. If Ethereum just becomes a payroll calculation software, that would be amazing because that's a huge use case. The consequences yeah. of calculating payroll taxes wrong is minuscule compared to the Dow hack. Nobody gets to walk off with <laughs> so if someone doesn't get paid properly. You don't think you think that's a minuscule problem? Okay. Do you know what happens if you don't pay the right amount of payroll taxes? What happens? You pay the right amount of payroll taxes next time with a little bit of a fee. Do you know what happens when a hacker walks away with a couple billion dollars of Bitcoin? What happens? They keeps it because Bitcoin is actually using proof of work to secure the network. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's hit some more of these areas where you think that there are some bad design decisions on Ethereum's part. I, I mean, I don't know what the point is, man, because I've gone like, I, I think I think uh, you, put, you brought to me ASIC resistance, and I'm telling you, I am the author of the ECIP to change ASIC resistance because I think that that concept is complete bogus. And as the author of this proposal, I'm telling you that I'm looking at an honest mistake. I have read the source code for ETHash. I have looked into the documentation around Ethash, and I'm just saying Vitalik's a human. You know, the, he gets this stuff wrong. People do wrong things all the time. And let's fix it in the same way. And, like, I got a question for you. I mean, didn't Bitcoin back in uh, 2010 or 2011 had a huge inflation bug? Then they had to fork back the blockchain to remove all those coins. I mean, w- what's the deal with that? Is Actually, a scammer? I don't even want to convince you. What I want you to do, because I don't think that you're 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 playing fair. I want you to invest as many of your resources as you can into building on Ethereum. And I hope that when smart contracting languages are actually ready to handle the sort of 
highly sensitive financial stuff that you're playing with, I hope that all the code that you write isn't even backportable to it. Because I think you're a bad guy. And I think the more money that you lose on these sort of scammy efforts, the better off the world's going to be. at this point it's clearly obvious that ethereum is not only a scam but it's a scam that's not even secure with that let's move on to part three introducing justin drake now i want to thank justin he's the whole reason this episode exists because if it wasn't for him and the Ethereum Foundation donating some of their 12 million ETH to the resources to put behind this new ultrasound money that they've been working on, well, I probably wouldn't even have gotten around to making this, right? I wouldn't have spent the weeks ahead to get around to doing this. So thanks, Justin. I really needed the inspiration. So with that, let's get into what this guy's doing. Well, Justin Drake has 99% of token value in ETH. He was given minor airdrops for free. This is typical because Ethereum has a shit ton of ICOs and they also have a crap ton of just Uniswap airdrops. And as you know, it's a shit coin casino and everybody gives everybody airdrops of the sort. So he probably has all kinds of shit coins that he's probably cashed in or given out for free. The guy has a crap ton of ETH at this point. 
is paid by the Ethereum Foundation in ETH as well. And he is leveraged long in ETH using ETH as collateral on MakerDAO. He has close to zero fiat and he is not associated with any blockchain project other than Ethereum. He doesn't do any um, speakings or he doesn't get any grants. This is, of course, all sourced from Ethub. So blame them. <laughs> I'm just, just reporting the facts, man. Okay, with that, let's let's uh, let's get into Justin um, because I'm sure he has tons of things he could be working on. I mean, the guy went to Cambridge, so he had to be smart to go to Cambridge, I would imagine. But instead of working on some kind of like, you know, ETH2 platform or something, he's out creating memes <laughs> and he's out um, going on these YouTube channels talking about memes and talking about how ETH is ultrasound money. Now, you remember in the beginning when we were talking about how 12 million ETH was for Ethereum developers and 60 million ETH was for Ethereum investors and 72 million ETH was at launch. Well, we kind of guessed, you know, that maybe there's 120 or I'm sorry, 112 million ETH probably in circulating supply. That gives us around 40 million ETH for the general public. Now, when you hear Justin start talking about this ultrasound money, just keep that in mind. Keep that part in mind about this 40 million ETH for the general public and this 72 million ETH for everybody else. Keep that in mind because if you're somebody who understands economics, <laughs> that I'm clearly, I'm clearly sure you do, um, then you will understand why what they're creating is not ultrasound money, but something that is called the Cantillon effect. <laughs> you would think somebody who went to Cambridge would understand that, but um, yeah, go figure. <laughs> first point in human history where engineering impinged on economics. 
Up until this point, people didn't really embrace the idea of energy theory and engineering theory and math and sciences as being integral to the way that a monetary asset functioned. You know, it used to be money was, you know, seashells and tokens, and then and then we have this general, you know, we have gold and we have coins, and then we have general agreements and and uh, and the like and. Bitcoin was the first time when we created um, a digital monetary asset, a, a pure, a, a pure digital token on a pure digital network that uh, that actually uh, respects the laws of conservation of energy. You know, I say it's it's sound money, but that's the same as thermodynamic. We sound money which is conservation of energy, which means mathematically proper. So, you know, I, the way that this meme came about is was really a joke. It was a play on the words. The idea was that if Bitcoin is sound money and it has cap supply, then if you have a decreasing supply, you must be ultra sound, right? And, you know, you can use the the, the bat emoji to kind of represent the ultrasounds that come uh, from, from bats. But... Um, you know, it, it turns out that this, this meme is, is much, much, much deeper, right? So one of the aspects that we've talked about at length is that um, economic security on Ethereum is much, much higher than Bitcoin. And that contributes to this ultrasoundness. Um, and, and, you know, that contributes, for example, towards um, Ethereum becoming the shelling point for a, a, a global um, world internet um, currency. I guess the other aspect is that um, if Ethereum, once we have EIP-1559, is uh, an income-generating uh, asset. So you can think of, of it in terms of, of profit and PE ratios. So, you know, if, you, if we say that we have roughly 100 million Ether and we're burning a million Ether every year, well, that's kind of a P-to-P-E ratio of, of, of 100. So, you know, Ethereum is in this really um, advantageous position where it can do multiple things at the same time. On the one hand, it can act like a stock, you know, with a P-E ratio of, let's say, 100. And it can also act as kind of a, a store value with this um, magic meme energy um, stored within it. Um, and you know these things are are, are complementary, right? So the fact that we now have money that behaves like a stock with a PE ratio makes it more amenable to become a store value because it 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 makes the shelling points even more potent. I want to I want to rehash what you said a, a minute ago because I want to make sure that it lands with the listeners. Once we integrate all of the research and development that has gone on from the Ethereum researchers about crypto economic system design, once we improve our engine from proof of work to proof of stake, it's much more efficient. We don't need to put as much fuel into it, which means we don't need to we need to we need to sell less ETH to achieve the same result, which is keeping the ETH battery charged. So we we uh, go from having to issue you know two ETH per block to much much less than that, 0.1 ETH per block. We bring the issuance down, and so therefore Ether becomes much harder. Then we add an EIP one five five nine, which 
captures so much of the energy of the Ethereum economy and turns that into net buying pressure of Ether, the asset, by Ethereum. And as a result of all of these efficiencies that we've talked about, we get to have as an Ethereum ecosystem, a net buyer of Ether that is equivalent to the amount of Ether that is in Grayscale and the deposit contract combined every single year, reoccurring a new one of those every single year. And, and, and an additional metaphor is all of the ETH locked in DeFi that we like obsess over on DeFi Pulse, the, I, I don't know what number of millions of ETH is locked in DeFi, or the, the, it's $42 billion. We get that net buying pressure every single year. It's recyclable. That buying pressure is recyclable. And so this happens every single year after year after year. And this is where the sustainability of both Ether, the asset, and Ethereum, the economy comes from, is because we have created ultra sound money because we have designed the system in the best possible way. And this is why Ryan is so upset that people don't understand this. It's because it's the yeah, I don't get it. most underappreciated asset of all time. It's absolutely no, crazy. I mean, there there are some 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 questions though. Like, is this fee burn really sustainable? And this is a valid question to ask ourselves. So, for example, what if the price of ETH increases? Right? Does it mean that because people are denominating their transaction fees in US dollar, does it mean that the total amount of ETH that is going to be burnt is going to reduce as the price of ETH increases? What well, turns out that um, that's not the case. So you can look at it from an empirical evidence standpoint. So from, from Genesis to now, the, the price of ETH has grown a thousand X, actually 2000 X from $1 to $2,000. And over that time, the amount of transaction fees has gone nothing but up. And so you can ask yourself, what, are, what is the possible explanation for the fact that the total amount of ETH in transaction fees goes up despite the price of ETH going up. And one possible explanation is that as the price of ETH increases, that's highly correlated with user demand, right? The price of ETH increases, you have lots of fresh blood coming in, you know, new users. And so that puts more pressure on, on the fee market and that compensates for the fact that the price of ETH has been increasing. I guess another um, exp possible explanation is that ETH is used as economic bandwidth in this economy. And so as the price of ETH increases, you have more economic bandwidth and suddenly you have more opportunities, right? You have uh, increased economic density, meaning that every single transaction will carry more value. Um, and you, know, you maybe have more opportunities in terms of arbitrage, right? Because it's just more money flush slushing around because you have more bandwidth. And I guess maybe another possible explanation is that you, you simply have a richer user base, right? And so the, the price sensitivity to transaction fees decreases. Um, and maybe like a final kind of possible explanation for this empirical behavior is that ETH is a, what I call, a, I guess, a unit of trading, right? So um, this is a pretty amazing statistic which is that if you look at the Uniswap volume, right now we're doing a billion dollars of volume on Uniswap. It turns out that 95% of that volume is in ETH pairs. What I mean by an ETH pair, I mean that there's two ERC20 tokens, one of which is the wrapped, uh, wrapped ETH. So out of the billion dollars of transaction volume, 
950 million is basically with ETH. And so if you look at arbitrage opportunities, they're going to be ETH denominated. And so it's, it doesn't matter if the price of ETH increases, because if you have, let's say, a 0.1 ETH arbitrage opportunity and your transaction fee is 0.05 ETH, um, and it's an invariant. Whatever the price of ETH is, you, you're going to want to conduct that, that arbitrage opportunity. And I guess we're starting to see ETH being used as a, as a unit of account and a unit of trading beyond just you know, Uniswap. For example, we're seeing it in NFTs. And the more ETH is used as a, as a unit of account, um, the more the amount of transaction fees uh, in ETH that we can burn is going to be insensitive to, to price increases.
Issuance is inflationary on Ethereum and causes price depreciation of ETH. Justin Drake and the Ethereum Foundation understand this and reply that they will take out supply elsewhere by burning transaction fees with EIP-1559. They are seemingly unaware of the other ills of inflation, namely the distortion of the capital structure and the cantillon effects of this. Economic activity, investment, and the capital structure will be distorted to favor the source of the inflation. In Ethereum's case, that would be proof of stake. Now, people might say, well, Carr, how do you know this? Clearly look at the evidence that is in front of you. The primary benefactors of a monetary system get to spend the money first before the effects of increased money supply. And this all will manifest in the market. Now, this is all going to take place once ETH2 comes out. This falls right in line with the green finance movement that is being pushed by all the central bankers across the world. We've done our research on this. Look at our previous episode on the Green Swan Conference. The Ethereum Foundation are moving into a world where they will govern most of the entire world's monetary network. Now, they will push the DLT, DeFi, and bankless narrative. I'm not trying to give you a reason to be afraid of Ethereum. I'm giving you a reason to hold your wealth in Bitcoin. It's clear as day with all the evidence we've talked about before and with the evidence that is brought to light now with E2, EIP-1559, and Justin Drake's meme on ultrasound money, all this does is benefit the people who were involved with the pre-mine. This is what that does. All they're doing is creating a cantillon effect on Ethereum. And most people holding ETH do not recognize this. Yeah, so obviously Bitcoin was born in the depths of the financial crisis, which gives it a nice nice historical element. But that was kind of a coincidence. Honestly, we know that Satoshi had been working on it earlier. The really special thing about Bitcoin was that it was launched anonymously by an entity that did not seek any glory or credit for what they did and apparently never monetized it at all. So they never really moved any of their coins. Satoshi sent one test transaction to uh, Hal Finney, who was one of the earliest Bitcoiners. Aside from that, as far as we know, Satoshi never spent any of their coins. So you have this wonderful Promethean quality whereby it's almost self-sacrificial. I mean, it's like this borderline godlike figure in terms of their restraint finds this monetary technology and releases it to the world and pays the price. They never took advantage of their filthy lucre. You know, they never they never recognized any of the $50 billion that they made from Bitcoin, right? Uh, and Satoshi also didn't assign themselves any privileged access uh, to the coins. You know, Satoshi could have just written in the code, I own 10% of the coins. But they didn't. They just mined in the open free market competition like everyone else. It's just that Satoshi is an early miner to support the network, accumulate a lot of coins for sure. But they didn't have any privileged special access. So that's one thing that's extremely special about the launch is that we had a founder 
that was truly committed to the monetary protocol and didn't seek either recognition or financial spoils, and then also left. You know, Satoshi left in 2010, 2011, and hasn't really been heard from since. And Satoshi could have been uh, Jerome Powell if he'd wanted, and Satoshi could have held on to power indefinitely, but chose to leave. The other thing is that Bitcoin circulated for a long period of time from January 2009 to about July 2010 without really having a financial value. So there weren't really any marketplaces. It didn't have a value. And so that gave it this really great distribution, you know, among a broad set of stakeholders. And there were no venture funds or hedge funds, you know, trying to aggressively buy up all the supply back then. Now, when you have new cryptocurrencies launched, they're like aggressively pre-mined and some gigantic Silicon Valley venture fund is going to own 30% of it. And so it's sort of impossible to conceive of how that could become a global money. Because how could, you know, a Silicon Valley uh, investment firm own 30% of the money supply? That doesn't make sense. That's just so oligarchical, right? It's, It's unbelievable. So Bitcoin, by contrast, is a very bottom up thing. It was the early enthusiasts uh, people that were, you know, really um, excited about the te- technology, they're the ones that obtained those early coins. And so there was a real element of fairness and just an organic nature to its launch, which would be incredibly hard to recapture today. Let's say Satoshi came back and they said, okay, I made Bitcoin 2.0, I'm going to release it. There'd be the most aggressive land grab ever by, you know, gigantic pools of capital to sort of get favorable allocations of the new system, right? But most new blockchains, cryptocurrencies are just sold, basically. They're, you know, issued in token offerings kind of thing. So it'd be challenging to, and people have tried to do airdrops, you know, where they, you know, distribute coins to a large number of people. Basically doesn't work. Most people don't care about the airdrop. So it's hard to have an equitable distribution I think the conditions of Bitcoin's launch were so lucky and favorable that they're very unlikely to be replicated. So I do think it's going to be a real challenge to ever have a new competitor that's as decentralized, as leaderless, as dispersed, sort of distributed as Bitcoin is, has its credibility. I don't know how you could overrule it on those important features.
so now we move on to part four. Ethereum and the continuation of fiat currency and debt slavery. Now, this has been circulating for a really long time. But the problem is, is when you say things like this, you have to have proof, right? You can't just say this stuff on Twitter and Clubhouse and YouTube and without having any actual proof of this, right? Well, finally, after a couple months of actually searching and searching and searching, we finally have the proof that we need to prove this, right? Because for the longest time, you know, a lot of us in this space have always thought that, you know, there was a state-sponsored attack on Bitcoin. We just didn't know who it was, right? It's clear that it is Ethereum at this point. Now, why do we say it's a continuation of fiat currency and debt slavery? Well, for this, I'm going to let somebody by the name of Alexander Shevsky explain it. Now, this man is responsible for me even looking into this. I didn't even start thinking about this until I saw him on this program called the Kaiser Report. Once I saw this interview, I was blown away. I was like, well, there has to be more into this. There has to be something else there. It can't just be something that we just say. Lo and behold, all that information is available in this newsletter. So I highly recommend you check out all the sources that I have added to it. It's all there. All It's all linked up. So with that, let's get into our part four, Ethereum and the continuation of fiat currency and debt slavery. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Wash my hands. Oh, larger. Yeah. 
let's let's think about it. So the state can't like they realized early on that they can't turn Bitcoin off. You know, they tried with Silk Road. You know, they've they've said all sorts of stuff. They've been discrediting it discrediting it for ten years. Um, they realized that they can't get control of the mining. Uh, you know, we saw what happened with UASF. You know, so they couldn't co-opt it from a block size. So, so there's sort of this Bitcoin survived all of these different attacks. And and I was sort of thinking through the other day because. I did a tweet prior to this one a couple of days ago where I said I haven't logged into coin market crap for uh, for like two years at least. And I can't believe like what's on there at the moment. Like I, I looked at it, I was like, geez, like there's the, the, the world lost its mind once again. And and I saw how like what Ethereum's market cap is at the moment. I thought, whoa, like this is it's ridiculous. And and I started thinking about you know, what, what does Ethereum represent? And I thought, okay, you've got a couple nodes who they tried to change Bitcoin and they couldn't. So they decided to print their own version of their own digital fiat, which is effectively what, uh, what Ethereum is. So they go and do that and they sort of, they, they, you know, get themselves a little wonder boy, you know, Vitalik who, you know, fits the archetype of the Silicon Valley genius because he's got, you know, He's somewhere on the spectrum and, you know, people don't understand what he's talking about. So he, he, he seems like he's someone smarter, kind of like Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos, you know, and sort of how she positioned herself. So sort of step one is, you know, create that and then create a bit of a buzz around Bitcoin success and say, look, this is the next Bitcoin and try and sort of co-opt and create all these kind of Silicon Valley-esque uh, marketing uh, messages around world computer or, raising money for, you know, the people who couldn't invest in things before and all this sort of madness, I guess, that we've seen in, in the last couple of years. So that's sort of step two is you've got Silicon Valley backing, which gives it this kind of feeling of uh, legitimacy, particularly in the light of the rise of Tesla and the, the fame stocks and everything that's happening else, everything else that's happening on NASDAQ. So then what happens is millions of people around the world who don't understand money, like we said in the previous segment, is you know people people they they accept the toilet paper issued to them by governments and they assume that that's a good place to you know good mechanism through which to measure the the product of their labor. So, so they don't question what money is. So they sort of like have this weird blend of oh Ethereum's like Bitcoin, but it's like a company because it's like Silicon Valley and there's like a wonder boy there. So it's, they kind of blend all of this together. I have no idea what they're buying, so they just put a bunch of capital into it. And you end up having all of these people holding this centrally managed uh, digital fiat that's issued by a group of developers who pre-mined it, who kept the bulk of it for themselves. And then what you get is uh, the state comes in and says, oh, this is great. Uh, you know, instead of us having to build a central bank digital currency from, the scratch, from scratch, let's just partner with these guys. Um, partner, uh, let's just take them over and tell them what to do. Because unlike Bitcoin, uh, we can hold the head of this snake and we can tell it what to do. We can direct it. Like with Bitcoin, we can't do that. So the, the best, I think, attack vector to sort of discredit Bitcoin and to, to drive capital away from Bitcoin is through something like Ethereum. I think, I think it's, a, it's a masterstroke and it's the best chance the state has to, to try and fight Bitcoin. I, I said, I'm in this for financial freedom. And so, so my brother's a trader and he trades traditional, uh, you know, derivatives and all this sort of stuff. And he, and he's sort of, 
you know, been completely dismissive of Bitcoin all his life. Now he trades it because he thinks he knows which way the price is going, right? Um, and anyway, he's like, yeah, I'm in it for financial freedom too. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not in it for financial freedom. You're in it to make dollars, which doesn't give you any form of financial freedom because your uh, money is dependent upon someone's promise. I said, the money that I'm looking to accumulate, the wealth that I'm looking to accumulate is not dependent on the promise of an institution, a state or an organization. It is rooted in the second law of thermodynamics. So, 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 so that for me is what separates Bitcoin from all of these other forms of fiat, be it Ethereum, be it the traditional US dollar, be it the Yuan, or be it these new digital fiat currencies that they want to issue from the central bank stamp. Now, the thing about these central banks is, or all these central bank digital currencies, you know, we've seen the ramifications of large scale tech companies having the ability to censor speech, right? And, and speech is the stuff that you just say out of your mouth, right? So whatever I'm saying on Twitter, this, that, wherever. Imagine an organization having the capacity to censor your human action. So there is no more fundamental form of speech than human action, which is the things you do. So I always say to people, it's like, don't tell me what you believe. Show me your bank account and I'll tell you what you believe, right? So, so, so people do what they believe through their actions and their actions are measured through where they spend their money and what they do it on. With a central bank digital currency, the issuer will have the capacity to decide when you should spend, how you should spend, for what reason you should spend, and how much you should spend on what. It's ridiculous. Like the, the, the you know, China's trialing their version of they're gonna apply a an expiry date to your money so that they can stimulate spending. It's like do, do, do people not see the trap that they're sort of walking into? So, so this is not that that is a categorical uh, reversal of civilization. It is not a progression of civilization. Bitcoin is a progression of civilization because it optimizes for the decision making to be done at the level of the individual, not the level of the bureaucracy who thinks they know what is right for everybody else. I actually think it's going to be some version of Ethereum, you know, partnered with um, with the state. So, so let's say you know some sort of Ethereum derivative of Fedbucks or Yuanbucks. You've got that in your, your your account now. You and I, Max, jump on a podcast and we say something that is supposedly not deemed correct. Well, instead of just shutting down our channel, they'll just shut down our bank account, and for a week you can't buy groceries. So what are you going to do? Go and steal the groceries? You know, you go and do that, then you end up in jail. So it's like, it's, it, it is the ultimate form of control. There is no better form of like complete control over an individual than the control over their money. And their money is the representation of their human action. So, so you can specifically tell someone what to do and what they can't do, cannot do through that. Um, so so I, I just think that that's such a dangerous dangerous pathway for humanity and for civilization and, and like we have to fight back against that and that, that's what bitcoin represents it's it's a pushback against fiat
state cannot feed itself, if it cannot fund itself, if it cannot fund itself, then it cannot perpetrate the crimes it continues to commit to society and everybody in the entire world. This is the core game that Ethereum and now the central bankers are playing on everybody. You and I cannot win a game of Monopoly if there is a player who plays the bank. The best we can hope for is to make friends with the banker and join him in screwing everybody else. And that exactly is what Ethereum is doing. And that's exactly where we are today. On a fiat money standard and Ethereum helping these central banks continue this debt slavery. The incompetent fools in our government can continue to fund themselves with the help of Ethereum. And this will continue for future generations. They will keep trying to substantiate their existence by getting in the way of free individuals by robbing one Peter to pay four Pauls under the guise of the greater good. And when that doesn't work, they will resort to violence or force to get what they want. I would like to salute the ashes of American flags. And all the falling leaves Filling up shopping bags That's going to do it for our final episode in season four, Ultra Ship Money. I'm also going to mention one more thing, and um, this is pretty important. You know, this is going to be inside the newsletter, um, but I want to make note of it here 
So the World Economic Forum is, is somebody we've been covering a lot of here recently, uh, especially with the Green Swan Conference and, and their ties directly associated with them. And of course, the central banks that are associated with that conference and how that is all entailed with how they control the money supply and how it gets distributed. If you want more information on how all that works, look at the previous episode. Um, it's clear as day, and it's all here in the show notes, but there is a Global Future Council on cryptocurrencies, and some of the members of this World Economic Forum Council are some of the people that are prominent in the Ethereum space. Um, one of them is a chief legal officer of Uniswap, Marvin Amori, um, which is kind of interesting because Uniswap is supposedly a decentralized protocol, quote unquote, on Ethereum. And it makes me wonder now why they haven't been uh, sought after by the SEC. This makes more sense now why that hasn't happened. Another person on that council is Joseph Lubin. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Consensus. This also makes sense why he is somebody that has gained a lot of notoriety on that front with the World Economic Forum and why their company is directly tied to a handful of companies that were at the Green Swan Conference. Um, another person who is really interesting is Ariana Simpson. She is a deal partner at Andreessen Horowitz and a partner at, um, at there as well. And um, what's interesting with her is if you know the uh, Bitcoin and crypto space, you know that Andreessen Horowitz you know, funds a lot of these token projects. And I think it's interesting that they have somebody of her stature on the council. Uh, and it makes me wonder what type of backdoor dealings are taking place, if any at all, um, with some of the people at the World Economic Forum. It's a small world. Um, I just think it's really interesting that you have a lot of these people in the Ethereum space working directly with the World Economic Forum. And I'm sure they will just say, you know, this is just a uh, leaders that they wanted to talk to. And this is to um, bring them together and to support the mission. But when I look at these members, not a single one of them are Bitcoiners. I don't see a single Bitcoiner in this membership group. Not a one. Not a single one. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Right? And all this information is in the newsletter. And if you look at the briefing papers and the insight reports and the white papers and the community papers, a lot of these are done by these people on this council. Right. They are creating these PDFs and I'll link them all here uh, to deliver to the World Economic Forum so they can get up to date on how to talk about, you know, digital assets and DLT and capital markets and, and DeFi and NFTs and cryptocurrencies. When you go through these PDFs, you, you find out right away that a lot of the sources that are cited are something like Coindesk and the block and DeFi Pulse and a lot of Ethereum sites, right? 
And and what makes me um, really understand now is that this is a concerted effort from the industry to make good with the World Economic Forum and to make good with these individuals at the um, at the very high uh, of of the of the status quo of of these elite people and to I should say allow them to create this monetary network for these central banks. Uh, it's quite pathetic, if you ask me, that uh, you would um, not only give up the liberty of your citizens, but you would turn your back on humanity for the sake of your own pocketbooks. Uh, I find it disgusting. I find it quite, you know, despicable. And I think, you know, they should really, you know, do a better job at asking themselves, why bother creating something like that when we already have something called Bitcoin that you could literally have people use on an everyday basis, like they're doing now. But they don't want to do that. Okay. You know, it's very possible like this whole sub stack that you're <laughs> that you're subscribed to could probably be wiped out. Right. Um, it's possible that this newsletter could be gone this week. Um, it's possible. I mean, these people have a lot of power. Um, this podcast could be wiped. Uh, you know, that's why it's important. You know, these email addresses that you guys, you know, subscribe with. Um, I take those with me. Right. If I wanted to start a decentralized podcast, I could do that tomorrow with these email addresses and send them out to y'all. Um, that's one great thing about open source, you know, projects like SMTP, <laughs> right? This is why Bitcoin is so important. This is why independent journalistic duties that we do here are important because no one will cover this shit. No one will go out on a limb and say, hey, uh, that's kind of interesting. We should probably look into that. No, because they have to stick to the narrative and stick to what the industry wants them to say, right? Oh, Ethereum's great. It's an infinite machine. It's going to be the next world computer. No, it's not. And quite frankly, it's a lie and it's a scam. Bye, Bitcoin. Save the world. See you next season.